Hello, and welcome back to the Oversharing Podcast Experience, which still does not have a good title, but that's a work in progress. Today, I have Elliot Brown, business reporter extraordinaire at the Wall Street Journal, who is going to talk to us all about Adam Newman and WeWork. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks for having me. So, yes, let's talk about Adam, who is back in the news because he recently raised $350 million, also known as the biggest check Andreessen Horowitz has ever cut in a single investing round for a new company called Flow, which is going to redefine the future of residential real estate. But before that, he had a little company called WeWork, which you wrote a book about. The Rise and Fall. Yes, and co-wrote, I should say, with, with co-author Maureen Farrell. Yes, co-wrote. And it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. I mean, how could you not? What a corporate epic for our time. They gave us plenty of material. One thing I've always liked about your reporting is that you came at it originally from a background of being a real estate reporter, right? Not a tech reporter. Yeah, yeah. I was actually covering the office market when I first stumbled on WeWork as, you know, a real estate reporter from the real estate beat. And one of the first things that Adam said to me when I met him in 2013 was that, oh, well, why are you covering us? You're a real estate reporter and this isn't a real estate story. That is sort of the essence of the WeWork pitch, right? Is that WeWork is a tech company, not a real estate company. But then if you agree, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the thesis of your reporting is that WeWork was a real estate company. Yeah, I think basically at first I, I was open to and, and actually interested in and looked into the idea that Adam was pitching, which is that they were something else, they were representative of some community or there was, you know, something going on that was more than just subleasing office space. But th then I think the, the more I looked into it and really the, what had happened was finding out the valuation of WeWork, which took a number of more months, which at the time was 1.5 billion and for this tiny company that just had a few offices. Then from, from like that day on, I, I just became semi-obsessed with the concept that this office space subleasing company was being valued like a, a tech company. Yeah. And can you put that in perspective for people who aren't necessarily too familiar with the typical office leasing market? The sort of shorthand was that Regis, which was a office space subleasing company and a WeWork competitor, they were worth one-fifth of what WeWork was, and they had five times as much office space as WeWork was. So basically, WeWork was worth about 20 times what a comparable business, based on sort of like the amount of office space they had, would be worth, which is, you know, we, we talk a lot about these, these tech companies, these, these normal companies that, that tell the world they're a tech company and have a tech valuation, and like Casper, my favorite, the mattress company, the, the Compass, the, the brokerage company, both of those were sort of by revenue and the amount of money a, a company would take in. They were like three or four times overvalued. WeWork was like 20. So it's, it was really a pretty amazing little wormhole of capitalism that developed for this thing. In the beginning, WeWork also got quite a lot of positive press coverage. I remember reading countless profiles about Adam and WeWork and how this company, they, they got a lot of mileage out of the beer on tap and the fancy spa water in the offices and all those sort of little amenities. You know, especially with the, the advantage of hindsight, which we, we saw through the book, you can see how they just, to both investors and the press, as kind of anyone else, 
they just played to what everyone wanted, you know, what was sort of hungering for. And so reporters would come in on this cool pitch of this millennial company that, that was changing things up and had all this energy in the space. And then lo and behold, there'd be a magic margarita party happening the, the minute people would come in the door. And, and you know, what you learn later is that that was all curated. So WeWork would, Adam would have a, a, a minion tell the local community manager to activate the space. And suddenly people would, would get champagne glasses out of, or tequila shot glasses out of the cabinets and send a message to everyone working in a WeWork to come rushing down and start mingling. So then the space would look really energy filled. And then Adam would make some comment like, oh, things are always going on in here. This place is just full of energy. And, you know, like you said, your book is the rise and fall. So to your mind, what were sort of the first moments that cracks started to appear in the WeWork story? So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think there were sort of like little hairline cracks that, that were, were happening all the time where, you know, they, they'd open up a office in, in Dumbo and, and I'd find out that like WeWork people would have to go work out of there in order so it would look full so they could get other people to, to move in there. But I think really the, you know, they managed to kind of surprise me every year by raising ever more money at ever higher valuations. And really that just, it was this upward rocket ship until 2018 when it went like they, they were literally, you know, one of the most valuable startups in the world. And at that point, $20 billion and they were very, 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 very close to a deal with SoftBank to, you know, raise 20 billion additional dollars and sell most of the company to SoftBank. Yeah, let's let's talk about the SoftBank factor. You have that great bit in your book where you talk about how the SoftBank CEO, Masasan and Adam Newman sort of fueled each other and played off their own increasingly grandiose visions or delusions of what the company could be. I think you talk about Moss is saying that the valuation would be $10 trillion by yes. 2028, which is just like truly a stupendous number to pull out it, of the hat. A, a, Apple was not even worth a trillion at this point. Yeah, like incredible projection. And you have that bit where you talk about him using the chicken egg analogy, like Moss is trying to talk about induced demand, basically, by saying like, if you build it, they will come. So you got to give them the chicken before you do the egg. And we're going to have these like massive projections. And then he, um, tell me if I'm getting this right. He sent Adam a photo of Yoda holding a lightsaber <laughs> and put his name at the bottom of it. Why do you find this interesting? Does this strike you as not the way, you know, a world's largest buyout of a startup would be uh, conducted? So the scene is that Adam and Masa were in these flurry of meetings negotiating what would have been the largest buyout of a startup ever, but acquisition of a startup for, you know, 20 billion for over 50% of WeWork. And Masa is trying to motivate Adam by saying, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? They're like, obviously it's the chicken because you have to, to show the, the thing before people will want it. Obviously. And so this was, I guess, a way of saying you need to keep expanding WeWork and then the people will come. And so then, yeah, he gets this JPEG of Yoda with a giant green lightsaber and writes down 10K, 10K, 10K. 
exclamation mark, which was a reference to some completely unrealistic targets that Masa wanted Adam to hit and then signs it, chicken first, Masa. Like what an incredible image. And what was amazing was that then in the next meeting, like we got this sort of progressive slide decks that SoftBank was presented by WeWork. Masa gives him this. And then in the next meeting, which is like a week later or a couple weeks later, WeWork presents that we are meeting our goals. We are following the chicken or something like that. And, and so then they have a photo of the image that Masa had sent to Adam. So what you're saying is that if I want to raise $20 billion for oversharing, I have to improve my Star Wars meme game. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 yes, but I do think the crucial part of that there is trying to raise 20 billion because clearly this would not work if you were just raising $100 million. That would, you'd be laughed out of the room. Exactly. But, but yeah. when you're trying to raise 20 billion and the sort of the stakes get lower. And, and you have to be serious to go for that big of a number. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It also, it reminds me that I've often heard from people, and I'm sure you have too, that especially in that era of SoftBank, internally, it was almost like a competitive environment with each SoftBank person trying to coach their portfolio company on how to have the biggest and most extreme pitch that would like make it up to the top of the ladder and impress Masa in this game show almost situation. Oh, totally. So yeah, I mean, th these founders would all, at that point, they all had to fly or they all had to meet Masa in person. So a lot of them would fly out to Tokyo and sit in a hotel room until they were summoned. A lot, some of them would meet him in his house in Woodside where he'd show off a Napoleon painting. But either way, the partner that wanted to get the deal done would teach them like, well, whatever number you say, Masa's not going to know much about your company, but he's going to tell you that number that you're asking for is too low and you need to spend more on growth. And so they would tell these people to, you know, you think you want 200 million, but tell him you want 400 million. And of mm. course, even still, Masa would ask for more money. So yeah, th this is one of these many things where it was like, we'd sort of hear about it beforehand and, and see, see the way it looked and be like, well, it can't be as cartoonish as it looks. There really must be more to the story. <laughs> and then we'd actually learn about it. And it would oftentimes be dumber than it seemed. This fit the crazy caricature and it kind of just shocked us each time, both what was going on at SoftBank and what was going on at WeWork. And this also extends to how SoftBank raised all its money, which is, you know, how they got $45 billion from Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, let's briefly recap some of the other SoftBank greatest hits of the past few years. So the Vision Fund one was this really extraordinary collective. So the Vision Fund was, you know, for, for, for those tuning in, the $100 billion largest investment fund ever made by SoftBank to invest in tech and so and, and startups. It was the chicken first of investment <laughs> funds. Yes. Still waiting for the egg. The, the game was to do these really big swings and big checks. And the number of total failures it, it stuck up is really extraordinary. So my favorite is Zoom Pizza, which was going to be a robot made pizza that was delivered oh, in yeah. a truck. Oh, yeah. I forgot about them. A small but fun one. They, they bought a double-decker London bus that, that went on auction after they, they were being liquidated. I mean, hey, if I had a couple million dollars, I would also buy a double-decker London bus. Not too many tangents here, but their robot pizza, if you, you watch their video that they would show about how the robots were making pizza, you, the robots even said on the side, ABB, like you could see it wasn't their robot. They just bought <laughs> the robot. Sure. Um, so Katero, which was a co construction startup that raised $3 billion and went to zero. 
Greensill, a, a lender that lent money to Katera and tried to lend money to WeWork, that, that, that went to, you know, liquidation or insolvency. What else is in that bucket? Compass was, was a bad investment. They, they put a, a lot of money into that one. Uber, they, they managed to eke out a small amount of, of profit on, it seems. Didi, they put $12 billion into that's now worth 2 or $3 billion, maybe a little less. Grab put a, a lot of money into that and, you know, another ride hail, not worth much. Well, there was that, there was that interesting period in ride hail, not to go on too much of a ride hail tangent here, where SoftBank was investing in all the competitors and then trying to broker almost monopoly-esque mergers between them in different regions as part of its investment. Do you remember yeah, this? Though, though the corollary to that is, is, or the inverse of that was then what really happened was they managed to get some monopolies in regions, and then those companies with SoftBank's monies would want to expand into other regions to compete with other SoftBank companies. And we once did a story on how in Mexico City, you had Rappi versus Didi Food versus Uber Eats all going at each other with SoftBank's money to like, you know, bring essentially free churros to people in mm. the streets of Mexico City. A precursor to instant delivery. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, WeWork was not the only one that, that SoftBank funded, but WeWork did raise, in the end, over $10 billion from SoftBank, which puts it in a very, very special club. And at least Didi was sort of premised on something that, that at least the premise made sense, mm -hmm. I guess, or some sense. The, the WeWork premise, I, I think, never made any sense at all. So on that with the WeWork premise, you know, in the essay that Mark Andreessen the VC partner at Andreessen Horowitz published about their investment in Flow. He had a line about how, you know, regardless of how you want to look at Adam Newman, he's this visionary founder and he was really the first person to transform commercial real estate while also scaling a global business. Do you agree with that characterization? No. And is the short answer. I mean, I think a, a very simple thing to look at when people in venture capital love to, or Silicon Valley love to say like, well, the guy built a $3.4 billion business. And th that's impressive that one could have a $3.4 billion business. The thing that you need to keep in mind is he took over $11 billion of investment to do that. So, I mean, you know, I'm not very good at anything, but I could make three plus $3 billion businesses if I had $11 billion. Yes, I would be happy to set up that firm with you. Right. And actually skilled people out there could could probably get more than three $3 billion businesses out of that. So from a pure investment point of view, it's a disastrous investment. I think another thing that people forget is, which we did spend a fair amount of time in the book on, is he was an abysmal manager. He would just churn through people around him and... It, managed to run a business in a way that lit money on fire more than even the average profligate CEO would. One of my favorite is they were trying to save money with economies of scale on couches and in theory had this idea that it's like, well, we're now like one of the larger landlords in the world. We can buy a lot of couches. And so we'll design our own couches. And so they actually did that. But then because there were so many sort of competing people who all direct reported to Adam, some other guy came in and was like, well, I know we have a warehouse full of these orange couches, but I don't like orange. And so then they just cut off all these orange couches that were lined in New Jersey and then would send people to like West Elm to buy a couch or, or you know, other things would happen where they'd air freight couches to an office that was opening in a week. 
because everything was was sort of choked up in the supply chain at WeWork and no one was really talking to each other. So it was really this total mess of an organization. I was going to say, I remember years ago taking a tour of a WeLive. It was the one in Virginia. And I can't remember who gave me my tour, but I kept trying to ask questions about how much different things in the We Live cost because they kept talking about how all the furniture was customized and the art and like the state of the art kitchen knives. And I was like, oh, like what was the procurement cost of these things? And they just would not answer any of these questions. But it looked very expensive. And it also looked like living in a dorm. And the other thing I was going to say about the We Live is that nothing made WeWork more unhappy than if you called it a dorm. I swear <laughs> I had an entire... No, you think I'm joking, but I not I'm not. I, I think I had like a ten minute phone battle with the PR person where most of the conversation was him being like, I don't think you understand it's not a dorm. And I was like, it seems like a dorm. <laughs> <laughs> really didn't seem like a dorm. I think they had may, maybe zoning wise, slightly more square footage. <laughs> And then I can't was this in your book? There was also the whole episode with the toxic phone booths. We briefly mentioned the the formaldehyde-filled phone booths. But yes, the, the, those came about at the very end when they were trying to save money on these expensive phone booths, which was an admirable thing, but they got a supplier that didn't clean out the formaldehyde. And so just as WeWork was sort of on death watch, they have some embalming fluid-themed phone booths everywhere in the empire. It's just sometimes you really can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. There was another, I'm going to get it a little wrong, but there was a corporate retreat that Adam didn't really show up to on time for executives. And they were talking about how important sort of listening is and sort of being respectful to, to one another. And then Adam comes in and someone mentioned something about a expensive cappuccino machine that had been ordered. I mean, it was actually sort of ordered for good reason, but then Adam just blows up and just stops the entire thing. He's like, who ordered that? And so then it was like, just the people there described this as, he takes the entire good energy out of this, this like senior exec retreat. And suddenly everyone's back at their throats and sort of just wondering why this man can't listen to the needs of the employees. Which is ironic because Adam was also very into talking about energy, right? I mean, perhaps not as into it as Rebecca, cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. But there was a lot about energy, superpowers, elevated consciousness. The, the S1, the, the IPO prospectus, was donated to the energy of we. This was one of those things where, where I think as time went on, the, the employees there became inured to it and sort of didn't realize that it was strange to have your company's motto renamed to being elevating the world's consciousness, which it was at sort of the beginning of, of 2019, which was the beginning of the end. You think about all of this and then the ensuing collapse and the fact that SoftBank had to come in with sort of a bailout for the company after already plowing in so much money. Adam walks away with a pretty good exit package, stays quiet for a couple of years, and now comes out with this new company flow. A question I think a lot of people have is, why does he get a second chance? I don't know the answer to that question. There's a sort of capitalistic answer that, that or economically rational answer that, that people say where it's like, well, if you were an early stage VC in WeWork, then you did really well. And I think the earliest stage VCs, that's true, but they, there is no love lost there. They are not happy about having hitched their ride with Adam. And so just sort of on, uh, you know, on that level, I don't know that that really passes. I guess there's the other economically rational thing where it's like, well, if you look at, at how much Andreessen is putting in and what this company is, it's largely real estate. 
And, you know, the real estate probably isn't worth 1.2 billion or whatever this thing is valued at, but it's not worth nothing. And so in the scheme of overvalued investments, this isn't crazy. I think the thing, though, you know, Andreessen Horowitz writing its reportedly largest check ever, it, it seems to me like a statement. Like they, mm -hmm. they're trying to do this for, I, I guess there's been a lot of speculation in VC land. You know, is it a statement to the press? Is it a statement to, to founders? You know, mm -hmm. is it a statement to sort of the rest of Silicon Valley VCs where they're, they're just saying sort of like, I know you guys think WeWork is the worst, you know, failure ever, but we actually see value or whatever. I would imagine it, it's a statement of some sort that we haven't really decoded the exact right meaning, which doesn't make it a great mm -hmm. statement. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, so you're, you're calling it a statement, which is a very polite term. To me, it almost feels like a troll in a way, especially yeah, because... Yeah, I, I think that that's what I mean by statement. <laughs> yeah, because, and, and when you consider the context also of that this investment was announced shortly after a very unflattering piece was published in The Atlantic that talked about how Mark Andreessen and his wife had worked to oppose multifamily housing development in their hometown of Atherton, California, also known as America's wealthiest zip code, because they said it would decrease their home values and various other things. And Mark Andreessen had previously written an essay called It's Time to Build, where he criticized America for not building things, including housing, and said that that was driving up costs of living and making it impossible for people to take jobs, especially in places like San Francisco. So then shortly after he is revealed to be a NIMBY, they come out with this new essay saying, look, we're investing in Adam Newman to fix the future of housing. Yeah, before that, like the first sentence was 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 still like housing is broken or something. And yeah, or, yeah every country needs more housing. And while while the, the details of flow have not been revealed, none of it suggests it's going to be a housing development arm uh, in a mm -hmm. big way. I mean, they, maybe they'll do that, they, but that's a really slow thing. Mean, now, that is a hard thing to do with venture capital. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, from sort of the look of it, this does not even look like it's doing anything to like increase housing supply. So, yes, I, I think it's it, it seems like it's it's likely some sort of troll. Which is sad because... $350 million maybe isn't a lot to a big VC firm or a company that's used to, you know, trafficking in, in the billions of dollars, but it is a lot of money. And when you think about a very real problem like residential housing and housing shortages, there are so many good uses of that money. And I think personally for me, it's a little unfortunate to think this is how the system works, sort of like you're saying, because you can make a rational argument that, well, Adam Newman is a he's a known commodity for better or for worse. Um, his early investors made a profit. There's always dumber money. If you make an early investment, it will pay off. You know, you can continue these arguments. But if you look at it on a societal level, it's sort of a sad statement about how these decisions get made. Yeah, you know, VCs get to always sort of justify individual checks by saying, well, you know, most things fail and it's the least obvious ones that make you the money back. Uh, and so that basically justifies any behavior. So hard to critique on that side. I think that for me, that a thing that that's sort of been rattling around my brain since this happened is, you know, it, it, it's almost like they are trying to show that no lessons were learned from WeWork in that. To me, the central lesson, I mean, there were a lot of lessons. It was a corporate governance dumpster fire. Adam was a very bad manager, a very irresponsible and avaricious CEO. 
But the fundamental thing that drove all of this was that this was a real estate company with real estate fundamentals and through hype and, and sort of power of personality, it got a much, much, much higher valuation and raised some of the most money a company in the private markets like this had ever raised. And from what we can tell so far, which is in a ton about flow, it seems to be a real estate company that, <laughs> that intends to somehow get a tech valuation, probably adding on this new layer of crypto because mm. that's the name of the game in, in 2022. And, and they've taken out trademarks that, that sort of mention that they're going to do coins. And, and you know, we understand there's a coin somehow involved or token. And those things are just magnets for hype and speculation without fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. I was going to say, adding on to that, we're almost seeing a slower version of that unraveling with Uber and with Ridehill. Because I think the technology argument is stronger with Uber, right, in that taxis traditionally didn't have any tech beyond a traditional dispatch system. And then Uber sort of created these algorithms and allowed you to get it from your phone, and it's much more convenient. But fundamentally, the economics are quite similar to that of a taxi service, despite what Uber will say about it being a technology platform that connects people who want to ride with people who have time to give a ride. And, you know, we we talk a lot about how what Uber essentially did was it took venture capital money and it used it to subsidize what is a luxury service and offer it at below market rates. And now after years of Uber failing to make money and losing quite a lot of it, they're having to try and readjust the economics. And the result is that Uber is getting more expensive. Anecdotally, a lot of people I know in New York, including people who work for Uber, take yellow cabs. And <laughs> it's just like this great reversion to the beginning. I covered Silicon Valley or, you know, venture capital basically between 2017 and 2022. And the sort of broad way, particularly in the book that I ended up, I ended up thinking about it is that what, what happened in that age, the sort of like 2015 plus era, 2014 plus era is because of Facebook and the er such early success of that and like low interest rates and all the money flooding in, what happened is you had bad ideas that weren't tech companies that got tech valuations. And so, you know, we, we, we talked about that a lot with WeWork and, and Casper. And then also any good idea with founders that fit the mold that Silicon Valley money men wanted them to fit would swing way too high. So it was not good enough that Uber was just going to like remake the four or higher car industry, right? It had mm -hmm. to be a robot car maker and a flying car dominant force and like have pizza fly in the back of cars. So it, it, everything had to be bigger each time. It had to be super pumped. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> and, and that was literally what would happen in funding rounds. And this happened with WeWork mm -hmm. was, it wasn't just the US, you had to, we need a new reason to raise at an even higher valuation. So let's say we're doing Europe. And then like one round is like, well, now let's say we're doing Asia and that's why we're doing this. And like, let's add We Live and that's why we can raise from these mutual funds at twice the valuation for six months yeah. earlier. So I think the getting an ever larger stomach was, in, in my view, like a huge dominant theme with, with Uber and why a actually good technology company, meaning like mm -hmm. an app that hails cars and changes the, the geography of, of urban transportation, wasn't good enough and, and needed to be a $50 billion company when it was losing gobs of money and, and you know, had, had a really small amount of revenue. Yeah. I mean, we could have a whole separate conversation about the need for endless growth, which is 
in and of itself irrational in a finite world. <laughs> but, you know, so it goes chicken first. That's our takeaway from this, right? <laughs> chicken first. Okay. Well, this has been great. Is there anything else about WeWork, about Adam, that you wanted to talk about, about your book, which is incredible and everyone should go read? Everyone should read the book. You know, I think with, with flow, the, one of the, there's, there's a couple of interesting points that I think people don't really grasp. So in terms of just like, you know, valuation and writing a check, people like to say, yeah, the early investors and WeWork or, or, you know, any bad company tended to do well. The investors who put in at WeWork when it was a $1.5 billion valuation actually today would not do well. So, you, you know, that I think at this point is a money losing investment. And so Andreessen Horowitz is essentially doing that right now before this company has been founded. And, you know, then sort of second, I guess, in, in terms of where it goes, SoftBank's very, very, very unlikely to give Adam money again. That was really the fuel for WeWork. I mean, they gave them like 10 of the $12 billion that mm -hmm. they raised or, you know, eight of the 10 or whatever under Adam. If the biggest checks in the, the, the room are, you know, keeping their pads in their pockets or whatever strained analogy there is, I think that that makes the sort of WeWork repeat difficult. And undercutting my own point here is that crypto, of course, could completely change the game by bringing sort of hype-seeking retail to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Elliot. This was great. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. May the force be with you. <laughs> Chicken first. <laughs> <laughs>